It's the Locked On Aggies Podcast, presented by Locked On Podcast Network, talking all things Texas A&M. Now, here's your host, Cole Thompson. Howdy, everybody, and welcome back into another episode of Locked On Aggies, presented by the Locked On Podcast Network. Cole Thompson here in the driver's seat, talking all things Texas A&M, and today, we're going to continue along with our bracket, who's moving on with Dat Nguyen, Miles Garrett, uh, Johnny Manziel, and Von Miller into our Elite Eight to find out which Aggie is the greatest Aggie of all time. Again, during coronavirus, it's one of those things where we have to kind of spread things around. We have to kind of see what is going to happen. So we're trying to make this work. We're also going to talk a little bit about some news going around Texas A&M history, some things that happened in the past, some uh, a coaching hire that was recently made from a former A&M coach. So this is a big deal. We have a lot to break down today. But before we begin, make sure you're following us on social media at Mr. Cole Thompson. That is my name. It's really simple. I love feedback. I love hearing what you like, hearing what you hate, hearing what you need or want changed. Any of those things. I love criticism. I think that it's the only way you can grow in this business. At Mr. Cole Thompson, my name is Cole Thompson. I am a mister. And last but not least, follow us at Locked on Aggies. Locked on Aggies is your number one source for all things Texas A&M audio related. We have the best content we can give you covering everything with the Aggies and the 12th man. So simple, hit that like button on Apple's iTunes. Subscribe to us because we want to get feedback. We want to know that you guys are listening and we want to know what you really like about these kind of shows. So just let us know whatever we need to do at Mr. Cole Thompson and at Locked on Aggies. Big news coming out of Texas A&M when it looks at the hiring process. A former A&M head coach has gotten another job and another opportunity to make his name in the NCAA. And you know the name, it's Billy Gillespie. For anyone who doesn't know who Billy Gillespie is, he was the former A&M coach from, I believe it was, yeah, from 2004 to 2007 before going on to coach at Kentucky and Texas Tech all the way up until 2012. He was recently hired by Tarleton State University. After more than eight years away from Division I basketball, Gillespie will be making his return. The former A&M and Kentucky coach was hired by Tarleton State. The school announced a press conference on Monday night. Tarleton State, for anyone who doesn't know the area, is located in Stephenville, Texas, making the jump to Division I this year and will join the WAC Conference in July. The Texans have completed at the Division II level for the last several seasons, making the D2 National Tournament 14 times since 2002, including a Final Four appearance in 2005 and 2015. Gillespie released a statement later that night, Wow, what a blessing. I've always believed I had to be the luckiest man in the world and today continues to illustrate that thought. I would like to thank Dr. Hurley, Lon Reisman, Tarleton State University, and the Texas A&M system, led by Chancellor John Sharp, for making this day possible. I promise to make the most of this opportunity and honor everyone involved. I'm looking forward to help make things great as we move to the Division I level. Uh, James Hurley also released a statement on the hiring. Coach Gillespie has shown how truly to be genuine in the way he cares about student-athletes achieving great success both on and off the court. After a national search and an extensive interview process, we are confident that Coach Gillespie's experience and commitment to Tarleton and our community will make him the right person to build on the story success of Texans basketball. A lot of people are having problems with this hire, and I completely get it when you look at his past. Um, 
you know, definitely because of some things that he's known for, some things that have happened. Uh, there, Of course, there's the biggest thing. Uh, in 2007, the Dallas Morning News described Gillespie as a self-proclaimed workaholic during his time at Texas A&M. The fact that he had three assistants who watched opponents' game fills and summarized them for him. He sometimes would watch as many as 15 opponents a game often working as late until 2 to 3 in the morning. He would spend long hours at work. He never even had time to go home. Uh, once going without six months without his food in a refrigerator, according to the article by Dallas Morning News in 2007. And, of course, there's the problems that he has with his drinking problem. You know, that was a big deal that came out in 2009. At uh, 2.45 in the morning in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, he was driving under the influence, a passenger in a 2009 uh, Mercedes-Benz C300 Charles O'Connor was arrested with intoxical, uh, intoxicated uh, alcohol. According to the police report, the officers saw the vehicle swerving. The officers who were at the scene... Uh, smelled a strong or odor of alcohol, describing Gillespie's eyes as being red and glassy, with his speech being slurred. When asked about the proof of insurance, Gillespie said it was in a golf bag in his trunk. He refused to take a blood test or a breathalyzer on the scene and substantially was arrested and taken to Franklin County Jail. Uh, he pleaded not guilty, but later he would go on to enter an alcoholic rehabilitation program he had checked himself into at the John Lucas Aftercare Program back in Houston, Texas. He's also known for pushing his players a little too hard. And this was something that became a big deal back in, I think it was 2009, 2010, when Mike Leach was still coaching at Texas Tech. There was that big story that came out about how he locked a player in one of his storage closets to let him think because of his injury, and that ultimately got him fired. Uh, that's not the case with Billy Gillespie. Gillespie got fired because of lack of play. Even though he was very successful everywhere he went except for Kentucky and Texas Tech. So his first, first two schools. When he was at UTEP for 2002 to 2004, he went 30 and 32. He went to the first round of the NCAA division during that year, 24 and 8 during his final year with the Miners. Then went to AM for three seasons, took him to a 70 and 26 record, 31 and 17 in conference play. Uh, he took them to a Sweet 16 appearance and a second round appearance in 2005 and 2006, respectively. Then he got hired to go to Kentucky, where he never had a good time. It was dead on arrival after that first season. They went 18-13 and 12-4 and and in conference play. They finished second in the East. They were eliminated in the first round. Then they went the next year 22-14, and 8-8 eight and eight in conference play, going to the NIT quarterfinals. He was fired in favor of Memphis head coach John Calipari. Uh, then he went to the rehab program for a year, came back in 2011 and 2012, and had an abysmal year as their replacement to Pat Knight for Texas Tech basketball, finished 8-23, and 1-17 in conference play. He was fired that year. When you look at something along the lines of Gillespie, who has a troubled past, and you're trying to build a program, I get the reasoning. He's coached at three levels, the SEC, the, uh, the WAC, and the Big 12, and he's had success... I mean, he's had success at all three when you break it down. His worst record was 30-32, and 32, and that was in two years at UTEP. He had a winning record when he left Kentucky, 40-27. and 27. 
So he was successful there. He had a 59% winning percentage. A&M was his big success story. 72% wins took him to as high as a number two seed in the conference as 27-7 and seven during that Sweet 16 appearance during the 2006-2007 season. But overall, you look at the history of Gillespie's past and you're going to have questions. Was this the right hire by Tarleton State? Maybe, maybe not. You don't really know for sure what's been going on, but you know he is 60. He's a native Texan. He's coached the majority of his career in basketball in Texas. From 1985 to 1993, he was a high school coach in Texas before taking the assistant job at South Plains Junior College in West Texas from 93 to 94. He served as an assistant at Baylor, Tulsa, and Illinois uh, from 94 to 2002 before getting a shot at UTEP. So he's been around. But you also wonder, a guy with this much baggage, is it worth bringing on? I think the only way you're ever going to know if you're worth bringing on is if you bring them on. And I do think that he will be on a short leash because of, one, you're out of coaching for eight years. You want someone who's in the coaching realm who can help you win. Eight years away from the game. I Listen, I worked in the Alliance of American Football, and the coaches who stayed around coaching for a long time were very successful. Then you have guys who were supposed to come back and make a name for themselves. They really weren't. And then you had guys who kind of came off the streets as head coaches like Kevin Coyle for the Atlanta Legends. And that's why they were the worst team in football because they didn't have a true head coach. Brad Childress got out way before we ever knew that he was going to be anything. He was a coach for, what, a week? And then he left? That's, that's my main point. It's just... The only way you know if someone's going to be successful is if you bring them in and you see how they are. If that's the case, then guess what? By all means, Billy Gillespie was the right hire. But keep in mind, that leash is going to be short on him. Because you cannot have someone come in and bring a bad reputation in your first year in Division I basketball. That's all I'm going to say on that. As I said earlier, we are going to move on into our bracket. Who will be joining our first four into the Elite Eight for next week's showdown, where we have the Elite Eight, the Final Four, and the Championship. Don't go anywhere. We'll be breaking down those names in just a quick moment. Locked on Aggies, presented by the Locked on Podcast Network. Cole Thompson here in the driver's seat talking all things Texas A&M. Guys, let me get your opinion on something. Do you like quality content with people who know what they're talking about in the realm of sports and also want to provide you with the best coverage for anything that you want covering your favorite team? Simple. Go download Locked On Podcast. Locked On Podcast has over two dozen college sports shows plus a plethora of other shows including NHL, NFL, MLB, NBA, and of course, fantasy sports to keep you up to date in your upcoming bracket for whatever it is this past year. Make sure you're following us. Hit that like button and go download Locked On Podcast today. We're moving right along into our bracket. We are halfway done with the Sweet 16. We already know that Von Miller, Johnny Manziel, Dat Newing, and last but certainly not least, Miles Garrett will be moving on into our Elite Eight But who will be joining them in that process? We have our next bunch of athletes trying to make their name as the greatest uh, Aggie athlete of all time. Coming in this week for our Sweet 16 as the number one seed, Heisman winner John David Crow. Number two seed, Mike Evans. Number four seed, Chris Middleton. Three seed, Chris Middleton. And number 
sixth seed, Richmond Webb. Webb got the upset over Warwick Holdman last week, and I thought that that was going to be a controversial one. A lot of people actually agreed with me that that maybe was the best pick. So we're going to start with him because if he's going up against John David Crow now, when you look at what Richmond Webb was able to do, he played at Texas A&M. He was originally supposed to be a defensive tackle. They realized he was a lot faster with his hands, uh, but he was better at catching blocks than he was moving people. So what he did was the team elected to move him to the defensive side of the ball, the offensive side of the ball, and he became a left tackle. And according to every single person that I've spoken to about Richmond Webb during his time at AM in the late 80s, he is arguably the greatest left tackle to ever come through Texas AM. And that's a big subject when you look at some of the names who have played that position, especially in the last decade with guys like Jake Matthews, Luke Jokel, uh, Jermaine Effetti. You also have Cedric Abwehi. All of them were successful. But they're all saying Richmond Webb was the one who is definitely the name you want to say when you're talking about left tackle. Definitely the one that a lot of people talk about more so than anything else. And there's a reason for it. Because of he's represented A&M beautifully at the NFL level. He played for the Dolphins in 11 seasons after being drafted with the ninth overall pick in the 1990 NFL Draft. Uh, he set a team record for consecutive starts with 118 and was named to seven consecutive Pro Bowls. He played two years with the Cincinnati Bengals from 2000 to 2001. His career, unfortunately, never got back on track, so he elected to try out for the Dolphins in 2003. He wasn't signed to the team, so instead of forcing himself to kind of make a name and you know fight his way onto another roster, he said, I'm done. I've had my career. I have played my time. Uh, and he retired as a Dolphin on July 9, 2005, signing a one-day contract. A lot like some other players that we've seen in the past couple years, like Jamal Charles is one. Uh, back when Brett Favre said he wanted to sign a one-day contract. You know, we're going to see it with Tom Brady, too. He will retire in a Patriots uniform. He will not be done. Uh, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame for the Dolphins in 2006. He is the second Miami player to be inducted following Dick Anderson, the 16th overall uh, he was the 16th overall pick. Overall, without Richmond Webb protecting the blind side down at South Beach, do we talk about Dan Marino at all in that sense? And that's why I bring this up, because if John David Crow was a fantastic football player, and we'll break him down in a minute, but Richmond Webb played a position that is now used at the NFL level as the second or third most dire position to address every single season. Quarterback's going to be one, and I think pass rusher's probably number two. But left tackle, if you are a standout left tackle, if you're an average left tackle, let's just go with that, you'll get paid easily. And when you look at Marino's stats during his time with Webb protecting his blind side, I think it was about nine seasons, if I'm not mistaken. He was a pretty talented quarterback, especially for one on the aging side. If you take out 93, which he only played in five games that year, he threw eight touchdowns. You look at the other years, and that would be 99, 97, and 96, where he threw under 20 touchdowns. He only started every game during that 1997 season where he threw 16 touchdowns 
and 11 interceptions. During that time as well, he was a Pro Bowler three times with Richmond Webb covering him. He was a, let's see, he was the NFL Comeback Player of the Year in 1994. They went to seven postseason appearances with Webb at the left tackle position. And also, just looking at this number right here, he threw for over 3,000 yards eight years. Six years. My bad. Six years. He also had over 20 touchdowns in five of those years. Overall, Richmond Webb, I think, maybe helped Marino keep his career around a little longer than what a lot of people expected. But you have John David Crow. And this is where things kind of get interesting because John David Crow is the embodiment of AM. And I've said that multiple times before because everything he did, he became the big name because of what he did in college. Under Bear Bryant at Texas AM, he was not a member of the Junction Boys since he was a freshman during that 54 season and he was uneligible to play during the NCAA ruling that time. But he was part of the first Aggie team to ever defeat the University of Texas at DKR uh, during the 1956 year. 1957 was the first year that AM won eight games and was ranked number one in the AP poll. They lost their final three games due to uncertainty whether then coach Bryant would be leaving the school. Although injured early in the season, Crow was able to play in seven games in his senior year where he rushed for 562 yards on 129 carries and six touchdowns. He also caught two passes and passed for five touchdowns. While playing defense, he intercepted five balls during the 1957 season. Bear Bryant famously, quote, if John David Crow doesn't win the Heisman, they ought to stop giving it. And eventually, guess what? He did. He won the Heisman on December 3rd of 1957, defeating Iowa tackle Alex Karras. Uh, Crow claimed to not have understood the importance of the award until sponsors flew him and his family to New York for the presentation. He had a stellar NFL career. 1958, he was drafted in the first round with the second overall pick by the then Chicago Cardinals. He played in 11 seasons with four Pro Bowls, followed the team to St. Louis in 1960, and finished his career with the San Francisco 49ers. Again, he also had a very pretty standout career as both a receiving option and as a backup passer. He rushed for a career 1,157 yards, also had 38 career touchdowns, and the receiving side... 258 receiving yeah receptions for 3,699 yards, 35 touchdowns. And as a passer, he passed in all 11 seasons. He threw for 759 yards, 10 touchdowns, uh, five touchdowns, five interceptions. I'm giving it to Crow only because of the embodiment of AM. Again. This was a do-it-all player. Richmond Webb, great guy. I do think he did help with Dan Marino's progression. And they went to six postseason appearances with Webb as the starting left tackle. You cannot take that away from him. But at the same time, I look at what I've seen from social media and what I hear about. Everything I hear about, it all starts with John David Crow. And, I'm, and I'll go back to saying this. John David Crow paved the way for dual sport athletes and for players to be able to do multiple things. Guys like, I think, Charles Woodson and Johnny Manziel would not be able to win the Heisman if it wasn't for a guy like Crow paving the path and saying, listen, I'm a do-it-all guy and I am the best player on that field every single season. And when Bear Bryant says, stop giving the award if you don't give the award to John David Crow, 
Bear Bryant, the most herald coach in the history of college football. Yeah, he's more than Nick Saban. I'll be the first set. He is more than Nick Saban right now, in my personal opinion. I don't know how you don't just automatically say, this is the guy who's going to win the whole thing. Do I think he will? I don't know. But he moves on to our Elite Eight. Will Mike Evans be able to crown himself as the third number two seed, or is Chris Middleton going to shoot the late three and pull off the upset? We'll be breaking down that matchup in just a quick moment. Locked on Aggies presented by the Locked On Podcast Network. Cole Thompson here in the driver's seat talking all things Texas A&M. Guys, make sure you're following us on social media at Mr. Cole Thompson and at Locked On Aggies. Both are great sources of income, and we love to hear your, your opinions of what's going on. But more importantly, subscribe. Go to Apple Podcasts and hit that like button. Subscribe to us. And if you're listening on Spotify, do the same thing. We love listeners, and we love having you back for more. We're closing up this side of the bracket. Who's going to be number six in our Elite Eight? We have two great matchups from the recent 2010s. Mike Evans versus Chris Middleton. Let's just break down Chris Middleton real fast. During his time at Texas A&M, he was a three-year starter. He began the season uh, right around, I think it was like December of 2009. He was forced into the starting role. He uh, finished 18 of the last 20 games in the starting lineup. On February 3rd, 2010, he scored 16 points to help A&M erase an 11-point deficit against Missouri to win 77-74. In the 69-53 tournament round of 64 victory over Utah State, Middleton scored a season-high 19 points. As a sophomore, he led the team and finished ninth in the Big 12 in scoring, averaging 14.3 points a game and also contributing 5.2 rebounds. He hit 45% of his shots on the floor, 78.4% of his shots on the line. Middleton scored in excess of 10 points or more in 27 games, uh, leading the team in scoring 16 times. He had a career-high 31 points in a 71-62 overtime victory over Arkansas, including 11 of the team's final 12 points to end regulation. He earned Big 12 Honors of the Week that year and Oscar Robertson National Player of the Week Honors for the week of December 13th through 19th of 2010. Middleton led Texas A&M to a 24-9 record and lost in the NCAA Tournament Round of 64, 57-50 in a contest which Middleton scored 16 points. He was selected to the All-Big 12 second team in the conclusion of the regular season. He hurt himself during the middle of his junior year. Uh, unfortunately, he wasn't able to kind of play. He only played a total of, I think it was 19 games. He sat for 12. He averaged 13.2 points and 5 rebounds per game. Uh, down from the previous season on April 9th during uh, 2012 he declared for the and uh, for the NBA draft for rowing his senior season right when the team elected to move over to the SEC so he never really was a big factor in the SEC but he was a big factor in the my, why am I why am I blanking on this and the big 12 yeah that, there we go two-time NBA all-star from 2019 2020 in the second team all big 12 his best year for Milwaukee, because he's only played for Detroit in 27 games, and then the rest of his career, he was traded to Milwaukee. His best year, he averaged 20.1 points, and that was in 2017-2018. So it wasn't even his all-star year he had his best points, and that was his best for everything. He started every single game that year. He played in 36 minutes that year. Outside of his three-point shot being down from 35, that was a, the year before 43, everything else, season high. So he's had a really standout career in the later years. He's only 28 years old. 
One thing I've noticed about basketball players is people give up on them way too soon when they're still developing their craft. If you're not Luka Doncic or Donovan Mitchell at 21 years old, you're viewed as a bust, and maybe you're just supposed to be a role player. Middleton and guys like Kawhi Leonard, who didn't figure it out until like their fourth year in the league, are reasons why you need to bank on these prospects being better over time. And maybe they won't be better for your system, and Detroit learned that really fast, but they were better players. Unfortunately for Middleton, as the four seed, he's going up against the number two seed. And this is the reality of it. You're not going to find many players ever who have the same style and same longevity of success that Mike Evans has. Everyone knows he only played two years for A&M, 2012 and 2013 after being a redshirt. But during those two years, he might be the greatest Aggie wide receiver of all time. He played in all 13 games with 26 total appearances, 151 receptions for 2,499 yards. He had five touchdowns his first year, 12 his second year. He was selected with the seventh overall pick by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and he's already set a record for himself. He's already broken records held by Tampa Bay receivers. Since joining the NFL, he has the most seasons of 1,000 receiving yards to begin a career. Six tied with Randy Moss. He's the youngest player to ever reach 7,000 receiving yards. 26 years old, 81 days. Youngest player to reach 6,000 receiving yards. 25 years old. Youngest player to have five seasons with 1,000 receiving yards. So he was younger than Randy Moss was when he broke that record. 25 years old. Youngest player to have more than 200 yards in a game. So that was his, his rookie year. He had, I think in his second or third game, he had 222 yards or something like that and two touchdowns. For Buccaneers franchise history, he's the most receiving touchdowns in a season with 12 in 2014 and 16. Most receiving touchdowns in a rookie season, 12, 2014. Most consecutive gains with at least one touchdown reception, four. Most consecutive gains with 100 receiving yards, 24. Most receiving yards per game in a career, 80.7. That's been his average since 2014, since joining the league. He averages 80 yards per game as a receiver. The most consecutive 1,000 receiving yard season. We already said that, six. Most 1,000 yard res- yards in receiving, six. Most receiving touchdowns in a career. He's already the touchdown leader for Tampa, 48. And that's only going to continue to grow because he's only 27 years old. Most touchdown, uh, most receiving yards in a career, 7,200. So he's already the, the highest receiving yards ever. He has the most in a season with 1,524. He has the most receptions in a career for Tampa Bay with 462. He is in Tampa's Hall of Fame while still playing. And he's only played since 2014. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Six years he has been. The most consistent weapon in football. And I will say that over and over again. People want to talk about the Antonio Browns and the Odell Beckham Juniors and all those other names. Mike Evans isn't even mentioned in the category until pick number five or six when you're talking about top receivers in the league. Now he has Tom Brady. And Tampa's looking really good. You want to see how deadly of a target Mike Evans is going to be? 
Get him the greatest of all time throwing in touchdown passes, and we will talk midseason about Mike Evans' progression. The guy is phenomenal. Sorry, Chris Middleton. You lucked out big time that you even got the first round by. You ain't getting past Mike Evans. Evans moves on into our Elite Eight. That's going to do it for this edition of Locked on Aggies. But while you're here, make sure you're listening to all of our local conference shows, Locked on Big 12, Locked on ACC, Locked on SEC, and Locked on College Football with Jordan Reed. Tomorrow, we'll be breaking down our other team in the Sweet 16. Which two will be joining the Elite Eight for next week's show? You're not going to want to miss it, so we'll see you then. And remember, take it me all. This has been Locked on Aggies, presented by the Locked on Podcast Network.